1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: Welcome to episode 464 with my guest Ruthie Bolton. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com, and mentalpod is the uh, social media handle. You can follow me slash the show at. Um, let's jump into it. Huh? Are you ready? You have your bathing suit on? This is from the Love Survey. And if you're new to the show, check out the website and uh, fill out some of our anonymous surveys. They're a big part of the show and uh, it's really some, some compelling stuff that people share there. Um, some stuff very light and fun and joyful and some stuff really dark and uh will crush your soul <laughs> this is uh, as i said from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself the beave and he writes uh, i love being in bed and rolling over to look at the time realizing i have two more hours of sleep oh my god do i love that one so much oh so simple so beautiful and then he writes, uh, I love those moments when my daughter is psychic and gives me a hug when I need one and don't have to ask. And this was, I don't know if I would say it's a, a, a red flag for for me, but it's there's a really fine line, you know, when it comes to affection between a, a, a child and a parent, it's really easy for the, the lines to get crossed and the parent begin to... To look to the child for comfort, which is not healthy for the child, um, and I know that the parent that does that is well-meaning, um, but I, I, I want to read something that a listener sent me a link to, and it's by a, a woman named Stephanie Ship. She's a blogger and. I'll put the link to her website because uh, you probably won't remember it. It's Thrive Trauma Recovery Coaching.com. And the name of the article is Parentification The Child Who Is Forced to Become His or Her's Parent's Crutch. And uh, she writes We've all met someone like this, that odd single guy whose mother texts him during his dates the wife who spends endless hours on the phone giving her mother support and advice, that child who seems overly mature and wise but is a loner. These are the most common examples of a phenomenon called parentification, also known as emotional incest. The offending parent does not engage in sexual relations with the child, but he or she invades basically every other aspect of the child's existence to such an extreme degree the child has little to no life of his or her own. So what is parentification exactly? What are the telltale signs? And by the way, I'm not saying that this necessarily applies to the survey that uh, he filled out, um, but it's possible that some of this stuff uh, applies. And I think it's just healthy for parents who were probably raised without boundaries, probably raised and in, in meshed households to kind of get a lay of the land and understand what healthy boundaries are um, between a child and a parent. Signs you were parentified as a child. One, your parent used you as his or her support and confidant. Two, your parent monopolized your time and attention during childhood. Three, your parent was and continues to be jealous of your friendships and frequently tries to sabotage them. four, Your parent encouraged and fostered financial and emotional dependence into adulthood. Five, your parent was indulging and supportive when you expressed self-doubt or unhappiness, but was sullen and evenly, openly hostile when you expressed joy, happiness, or success. Six, your parent frequently complains to you about their problems with your other parent. Seven, your parent expected you to be loyal and in alliance with them against the other parent. Eight, Your parent made inappropriate and intimate disclosure to you about the other parent. Nine. Your parent discouraged you from becoming independent, often by undermining your self-confidence and courage and by cultivating fearfulness. Ten. Your parent referred to you as, quote, the man of the house or, quote, daddy's little girl. Eleven. Your parent treated you like uh, her spouse or his spouse and expected you to adopt the responsibilities of a spouse. Twelve. Your parent violated your privacy and sexual boundaries through inappropriate touching and or inappropriate comments about your body. Thirteen, your parent demanded demonstrations of affection from you, which may have included demanding you cuddle with them, help them bathe or dress, or other similarly intimate acts. And fourteen, your parent demanded you disclose details about your budding sexuality. Um, And personally, from... My experience growing up in, in in my house, I check about three-quarters uh, of those and had no idea until well into therapy that those were not okay and that that was not healthy and that that had affected me. And that's not to demonize uh, my mom. There were many great things about um the house I grew up in and about her personally, but this shit's complicated. And then um, she writes the impact of parentification and childhood. Parentification robs the child of a childhood first and foremost. The narcissistic parent demands that the child abandon his or her own needs, and worse. Ignore the fact that the parent refuses to meet the child's needs. Instead, the child must become the parent's, quote, need meter. The child resides in an insane world where everything is upside down and backwards. Parent is child, child as parent, spouse, and confidant. In cases of severe parent- parentification, parental alienation occurs. This happens when the narcissistic parent demands that the child adopt an alliance with his or with her against the other parent. This is is common in severely broken parental relationships where the parents are usually separated and or divorced. The parent procures the child's alliance by convincing the child that the other parent is, quote, bad. In this way, the parent gets their needs for support and love met while turning the child against the other parent and denying the child her natural right to love her other parent. And, uh, you know, throughout this, she, you know, sometimes doesn't do the he or she or his or her, but you understand that this isn't specific to any uh, gender. The impact of parentification in adulthood children who have been parentified grow up to be adults who have disordered boundaries. They tend towards one of two extremes, either they are utterly boundaryless and codependent or they create such rigid and inflexible boundaries that they let no one in at all. They have no sense of self and feel like an alien in most social situations. They usually suffer from severe depression. And they feel lost and lonely most of the time. They long to connect with others, but at the same time, they fear connection because in their childhood, connection meant invasion. Women who parentified by their mothers often struggle with owning their feminine identity and often have disordered eating. The parentified child was expected to do a superhuman act, meet the needs of the all-powerful parent. They were treated as the solution to the parent's problems. This made the child feel special and powerful and caused the child to start identifying with adults rather than other children. As a result, the parentified child becomes alienated from his or her peers. Parentified children feel superhuman and even grandiose. These feelings often follow them into adulthood, and as a result, they are sometimes misdiagnosed as narcissistic. They are not narcissists. Adults who were parentified as children suffer deeply, but the situation is not hopeless. If you were a parentified child, you can rebuild your sense of self-worth and you can thrive. I encourage you to seek treatment to help you rebuild the life that was stolen from you. There is hope. And then signed, Stephanie Ship. And some readings that she recommends, which I highly agree with. Uh, Covert Incest Syndrome by Patricia Love and Joe Robinson. Silently Seduced, When Parents Make Their Children Their Partners by Kenneth Adams. That, I'm a huge fan of that one. And The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. I'll put the links to those books and to this blog piece by, uh, by Stephanie. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That um, just so helpful, I think, because there's so much gray area in relationships and it can be so hard to sort that out, especially be- because of that genetic need to want to hold on to that parent child relationship and to not find fault with the parent. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp, which I tell you about every week. If you've never tried online counseling, check it out. I think you, I think there's a good chance that you will dig it as much as I do. I love not having to leave my house and just doing it every week on my laptop. So if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor, oh, Gracie, I, cl- I close the shutters to the, front of the house, hoping, (laughs) I love the little, got to get the last word in, bark, tell them to be quiet, and then there's a, Uh, if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. I also want to tell you guys about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Family Ghosts, and it's from Spoke Media, and it's the gist of it is each episode uh, tells the story of some kind of larger-than-life figure from the family's past, and then they try to figure out the truth about who that person was and their life and the impact that that person has had on the people in the present day, and they've investigated grandmothers who were secretly members of international jewel smuggling rings, a a great uncle's suicide that turns out to have actually been a murder. And they even helped a guy track down his grandfather's stolen corpse, which normally you reserve for Christmas time. There's nothing like finding a corpse and then having a little hot cocoa. Uh, Each episode, and there's three seasons, so um, I'm sorry, each season and there's three seasons so far, uh, kind of explores different storytelling formats, long-form documentary, first-person narrative, autobiographical songwriting. Um, And the most recent season has some some really cool stories, uh, survivors of the last slave ship to enter U.S. waters. Uh, A lot of cool stuff. Family Ghost has been celebrated by the L.A. Times, NPR, and The Moth, just to name a few. Family ghosts, the families are real, the ghosts are metaphorical, and the truth is always relative. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. This is from the Love Survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself locked up. And uh, she writes, I love when I'm sleeping on the bed next to my partner on a rainy day. We can't sleep in the... Oh, and she's 17, or 18. We can't sleep in the same bed because of her parents but she still drapes her hand over the edge of the bed so i can hold her hand if i have a nightmare or get scared with the thunder i love it when it hits that time and i know it's safe to get into her bed and cuddle and i love that she makes space for me without having to wake up like her body knows that i'm there i love going to the movies with her and when they turn off the lights she holds my hand somewhere in the middle she will kiss it slightly and i know that i am safe at least for the moment. It's beautiful. Thank you for that. And then this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Giddy Kitty. And she writes, "Um, I once drove to a wooded area that I grew up near with the intention of ending my life. I was sitting in my car. I had a blue box cutter in my hand, blade out and tears streaming down my cheeks when I heard the sound of a snapping tree branch and rustling leaves. I immediately started my car and left because I didn't want to be murdered. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared and we're we're just all in this this together. together. There was no joy Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl Panic attacks are so violent Rudderless They were mistaken for seizures Shot coke in my neck The TV was talking to me Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared He said, there's going to be a sack of hunger strike." Nothing's real And I'm going to die Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal Just beyond broken
1: I'm on out You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with I'm gonna it? Fucking someone else
0: It's okay, To be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so
1: happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that.
0: It takes a lot of work to heal.
1: It's hard being a weird kid.
0: Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking
1: for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools.
0: (laughs) I'm here with Ruthie Bolton, who is a... WNBA hall of famer uh olympic gold medalist and advocate for uh survivors of of domestic violence Uh, ruthie and i met about what is about six months ago in sacramento Mm -hmm. we did a mental health event up there and uh i got a chance to interview you and i said anytime you get Mm -hmm. down to la i'd love to record you for the podcast so thank you for for being here um Let's let's talk about your childhood, where you grew up, kind of mm-hmm. what the environment was was like.
1: Yes, the environment was twelve girls, eight boys. Um, my dad is a minister. I'm a PK kid, pastor, uh, preacher's kid, and um, and so we grew up in Mississippi, a very sub, uh, in the suburbs, uh, country, if mm-hmm. you will, and um, we lived on about ten acres and. Farm. We raised uh, chickens, hogs, uh, cows, uh, horses, and and vegetables. Okra, which I don't like too much. Corn. So we live. Okra
0: is uh, so slimy. I
1: know. I don't yeah. like it. I don't even like it fried. I just want, I, But most people in the South like likes it. So we grew up, and and there was a lot of people. Not only my family, you know, my s- siblings, but I had a nieces and nephews. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so it's like, it, we had, like, a clinic where we grew up that was jumping the fence as a sport. You know, who could jump over and put a water in a sport. Uh Someone would be spreading. Like, it was almost like a clinic outside, seriously. And it, it just, it was the most beautiful thing in the as a kid. you just thinking, like, all these people are my relatives. And my mom's sister has 18 kids about three or four miles away. And then another sister had, my other sister had 12. She was, looking, was a little bit further away, like 10 miles. But can you imagine? Wow. All us first and second cousins and.
0: And you were the 16th. 16, 20. 20.
1: Yeah, I have a twin brother. So I think about it. I'm glad my mom didn't stop at 15. I would have been messed up, shot in the water. But, uh, <laughs> but yes. And, um, so we grew up, uh, in the South and, uh, but yeah, and that, my basketball team, our basketball team, high school team, which we went to state twice. Mm-hmm. No, we went to state four times. We won twice, I think. But anyway, we were had a very good basketball team. We were all cousins except for two. What? Can you believe it? Our team, we dominated too. It was just, we talk about that now, like how we just, we we were just very talented, our basketball team. So, we all grew up eating cornbread, black eyed peas, red beans and rice. Man, that was, that was a food. When I, I couldn't eat before a game, I felt like my stomach was feeling funny. But after a game, man, I would eat a big old bowl of red beans and rice and cornbread. Stuck to my bone. That was that was that's what to me. That's the real eating. That's what make it strong. And so that's that's what we thought growing up. That was a good stuff.
0: How old were you when you started playing basketball?
1: I was probably about I would say nine or ten. But really, mm-hmm. start to really uh, I would say the first team I was on. I was twelve. That's we. I hear they call it middle school, but we call it junior high mm-hmm. back in Mississippi South. I was in the seventh grade. That was the first team I was on in eighth grade and then I went to high school, which is ninth grade. So, uh but yeah, it was uh I, I uh, it was a sport obviously that you know, people always ask, you know, why did not play individual sport, but being from a big family, mm-hmm. those team sports was always better. And so we played basketball. We had to the tire rim on the tree—I know that sounds cliche. You hear the stories a lot, but mm. really, we did. We had like the bicycle rim, then another tree we had the really the rubber tire on the tree. Mm. And we grew up. That's where our basketball going. When we finally got a real basketball rim, it was just like heaven. I remember it was like, oh my god, we got a we got it for Christmas. Our mom surprised us, and so we were playing from sun up to sundown out there, you know.
0: And were you a, a guard?
1: I was a guard. Yeah, I was a shooting guard. But I really couldn't shoot that well, but defense was sort of my bread and butter.
0: Yeah. It was, yeah, it was. Even through your career. Yeah, really it was. What's the key to being a good defensive guard?
1: You know, I was a player very aggressive, uh, and I just had this, like, this relentless mentality. It takes a very gutsy player to play defense. I'm like, it's just almost, and you have this mentality of, like, and I was a very, I was a perfectionist when it came to defense. Like, defense, like, I wasn't satisfied. Like, I could watch video. If my girl got by me once, I felt like, oh, man. And most people, just, oh, no big deal. Like, I took it personal And someone mm-hmm. got by me. So I got it. So And I had to play harder defense because I didn't have a shot. I wasn't this great shooter initially early on in my career. Mm-hmm. So defense was the only way I was going to be able to play. Defense is where I created my name and defense because it had, you know, it takes a player that. Uh, have this resilience and that player to have that that hungry player.
0: The the most competitive players you see are, or I should say the, the good defensive players tend to be the most competitive people really because is. a lot of people are just interested in the glory. Yeah, they're, the they're glory. Not- the, you
1: know, offense, that's great because you need to score to win. But it's true, you know, offense win games, defense win championships. And you can look at, you can go through your history book and look at teams that have, been successful and it may seem like that offense was the stuff but really they actually when you go back they actually play defense You look oh, at yeah Chicago like michael Bull, jordan yes yeah, was... you look at they were offensive deep but they it start with defense you got to get the ball you got to know how to make a stop and uh and so that's what the defense just was like i loved it i knew no matter what no matter how i felt before a game defense is always could be consistent and that kept me in the game. And that's why I tell a lot of athletes I talk to, I say, you know what, yes, you can work on other parts of your game, but if you can focus, if you can play defense, mm-hmm. you're going to be playing. That coach is going to look down. We need somebody to know how to stop that player. Yeah. We know that you're going, you're going to get called more often than than usual.
0: I, I love to the, uh, I play hockey and, and my position is is defense and one of the things that I love the most about it is the psychology of getting a guy to oh, do what you want him to yes. do. Yes, it, it is so... Giving him an opening and then shutting it I down. Will, and
1: I love it, too. Matter of fact, my, Tara, my coach, in the Olympics, I talk about But anyway, she just said that, if you play defense, because I love to take chances, too. She said, you, if I took a chance and got out of position, mm-hmm. I was on the bench. Because you, now you're putting the players at mm-hmm. at, at, at vulnerable. Now you got mm-hmm. five on four, so... I had to really study my player. I would watch video and I'm like, okay, I think she weak to her left or right. And I, and it was just like a, I enjoyed it. It was like a skill to me. And I would get down and I learned because I was, at first I was a, I fouled a lot. Hmm. Cause there was a thin line between being aggressive and being complacent sitting back than that. When you finally get the two, the combination of the aggressiveness and still can play aggressive without fouling. Playing
0: right on the line. Right on that.
1: Man, I would get into it. I'm like, I would just get down low. My head would be in the center. And that's when they were having the strong legs. And I just had, and I use my arm. Man, it was like, I would make players' life miserable. And I would love it too. I, I, this picture, I have to find and show it to you. This girl, I'm like, I wasn't satisfied with making you. My goal was if I asked 10, I, if I asked 10 players, you know, you know, I was a high school player. What is the number one principle of defense? They all gonna think stealing the ball. Seriously, you may find one. It is stopping the ball. See the ball, stop the ball. And when I make you stop your dribble, now you now you gotta make a decision. You gotta find your teammates open. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to make your life miserable. Well, this is my mentality. When I play defense. I want you to. Really, I want to make you regret you ever played basketball. Mm-hmm. That you ever put shoes. I had this mentality mm-hmm. of just making their life horrible.
0: <laughs> Did you enjoy it when it when uh, you'd make him stop the dribble and then you would uh, oh, get the ball and you'd be wrestling for it? Listen,
1: man, that was listen. And if I got my hands on it, it's a, it was a wrap. Yeah. I got a picture that I have to show you. When I if I go and speak somewhere and I don't have a lot of time, I show them this picture. I say, "What do you see in this picture?" I'm wrestling with the ball from two Brazilians. They're like, "Oh, we see strength, we see determination, we see courage, we see not giving up." I said, "Yes, all those things you see." But you know what? It was two minutes left in the gold medal game when that we was up by twenty five. The look on my face, the agony—I'm like, I didn't want to lose one possession. We had—I had worked so hard for that moment. We had worked so hard, and that—that that picture embodies who, my whole career. How much I love the game, how much I played for my team, and how just how the tenacity. The end, it was—I had a grus- I had a gruesome look on my face. It was not cute. Yes. But I tell you one thing. We were, After that night, the Brazilians, that she would never forget me. <laughs> when I walked on that court and the coach told me, she said, you know the key to us beating the Brazilians? Because they they averaged they average scoring more than we did. Yeah. And they were a team that was amazing. She said, she asked me, the key to us winning tonight? I said, determination, teamwork. She said, you're the key. This is my Olympic coach. She said, you're the key to us winning. I'm like, where well, she's at? You got to get in your stands. You got to play defense like your life, depend on it. Because we've done our – we watched video. When this team get going, the, the point guard, she was amazing. They call her Magic Paula. She played like Magic Johnson. She could shoot anywhere, find teammates open. Mm-hmm. Tara told me, she said, Every, this night is, is going to change women's basketball forever. We don't win gold, we fail. Ain't no such thing as winning silver bronze. If we don't win gold, they're going to look at us like – we don't, we don't play basketball. So so much was on that state.
0: Wow. That's a lot of pressure. It
1: was. She said, but she knew I, if I didn't think you could do it, I wouldn't put that on you. So she said, this girl, this girl was averaging about 30 points a game. She said, you got to get in her stance. If she go to the bathroom, you go with her. <laughs> she said, I want you to get so close that you could tell what toothpaste she used to brush her teeth with. I'm like, coach me. She said, I believe in you.
0: That what what moment, did you hold her to?
1: Man, listen here. I, I, I asked the kids. I said, well, how many of y'all think she scored? And I said, if anybody say over five, I'm making you do push-ups right now. <laughs> I have, she had one basket against me, three points. Because wow. you know what? When I walked on the court that morning, that, that day, I never said one word. I looked at her. And when I looked at her, I said, this is about to be the worst day of your life <laughs> on basketball. And sure enough, I listened to the day. And so to me, that moment meant so much to me because the coach trusted me. Yeah. And I was able to change the game you I know you just talk about how deep and like I'm, right. I'm gonna
0: make you do what i want you to do right so was there a sense when you were on the basketball court that you could access a power that you didn't feel off the court
1: indeed of
0: talk course talk about that
1: you know i i felt like that on the basketball court i felt like i saw it i felt like it was i had this mentality of just like you know what I, I had control, and whatever uh, I wanted to happen, what happened? And the coach could tell me, so my, I, I reference her a lot because she just believed in me. She said, I don't know what happened in college, but I believe you could be one of the best shooters in the country. You'd be one of the best players. And she came to me, and she said, I believe in you. We're going to make you, we're gonna, uh, you're going to impact the world by your game. So when I got on the basketball court, and whatever she told me to do, I feel I believed I could do it. Yeah, and she made me. If she had told me I could fly, I would have believed it.
0: <laughs> One of the things that I find so freeing about playing sports is the rules, the constraints. Mm-hmm. That you know where where the box is. In life, it's so much more gray. It's so yes. much more confusing. But with sports, it's like. You know where the wall is, you, you know, know, how exactly. hard you can run at the wall. So
1: true. And, you know, the boundaries, you know, right. the the, the sideline, you know, what, uh, what, how you can d- dictate on the court. And this is very clear. Right. You know, it's like you're either out of bounds or you're not out of bounds, right. you know. And so I think that it's sports is amazing. It teaches you so much about yourself. And I think that, you know, the reference back when I played defense, I felt like I made a difference. I impacted change. And it was just so beautiful to be able to, to do that for my teammates. And, and, and I love being part of a team and maybe just being part of a big family, but being on the basketball court and knowing that I got out there and if I defend my player and if I keep her from scoring, like that's going to help not just me, that's going to help our team.
0: Yeah. What would it feel like when, when your teammates would, you know, look look at you or say something to you after a after a good play.
1: It is the most amazing thing th- th- that teamwork mentality and someone, you know, high high fiving you, someone elevating you, someone edifying you. It just it feels so rewarding, you know, and, and I felt basketball was my safe haven. Mm-hmm. It was a place where I felt like I soared, it was a place where I felt like I would just my teammates were proud of me. And and I know we'll talk about this later, but my teammates, I felt like, you know, a lot of in my personal life, there's a, a lot of things going on that I felt like I didn't control. Mm-hmm. But on the basketball court, it's like my teammates edified me and they made me feel like I was important. Yeah. They made me feel like I mattered.
0: So let's go reverse and just go back to, to childhood for a bit. You know, some of the things that we talked about before we started recording was. um discipline and punishment and your family growing up. Give us uh, a a couple of stories to kind of set the stage for emotionally uh, kind of what it was like uh, growing up and what punishment.
1: Well, my, my dad was very, very, uh, very, he was a disciplinary. Um, You know, we knew on Monday that my dad didn't lie certain things when they were on Tuesday. He was very consistent in his teaching. Uh, he knew. Uh, and so we learned that uh, from my dad. And, you know, I know these days may be different, but we got, we were called Peach Pie. And there was disciplinary, one, there, there was a spanking. And I didn't get that many because I was a pretty good girl. I was good. You know, I was obedient. But, uh, but my dad was real big on disciplinary. And he would always say, everyone, I love all of you all the same, but you bring home your own report card. He's going to reward, you know, he's not going to love my twin brother the less than he loved me. But if I bring home an A, I'm going to get rewarded for my A. If he bring home a C or D, he's going to get rewarded for his D. And so he will always, we looked at, you think about discipline, you look at it as, we look at it as punishment. You think, Oh my God, he punished me. But my dad looked at discipline. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, 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 and to me, being the, the discipline of us and making sure that, you know, he, this, he talked about principles. He would say, if you're taking life with you just a few principles, you want to carry a suitcase full of rules, and now he will always talk about that. And my dad had principles. You can't sit in the car with boys; it just ain't gonna happen. I'm not gonna make all these rules, okay? You can't hold your hand. You can't listen to this kind of music. No, it ain't gonna. You're not gonna sit in the car with a boy. And then another thing about we grew up in high school, we couldn't go to if it wasn't school related. We couldn't go. If it wasn't like mandatory, like just parties, he didn't allow us to go because too many of us to have to. So we just, he just, you're just not going to go. Mm-hmm. You could, you can live life without going to this extracurricular activity when it didn't matter. So my dad was very strict at that time. We thought about, man, we miss out on all the fun as kids. All we mm-hmm. do is go church, 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 church on Sunday, something on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you, as a kid, you grew up thinking like, man, that's all we do is church, but I look back, and my dad really just had eyes that we didn't see. That mm-hmm. He was our eyes, our ears. So I'm thankful for the teaching, mm-hmm. for the foundation he gave us. And that really has helped me. It helped me in my whole life. He gave us an amazing foundation. Anything in life has to be built on a solid foundation for the last.
0: Do you think people today would look back at some of the physical discipline you received and call it ab- abusive
1: you know, I know that I I didn't get a lot of whipping, but I know my brothers did, and they, you know, my dad would tell them to go get their own switch, and he would spank them. And and one thing my dad said
0: he was His switch would be a switch branch. would be
1: a branch, and they had to go get their own one. And if right. they got one that was too small, that would you know, my, you know, it would double So you gonna get an extra whipping because he want he said don't try to outsmart me. Right. But so they would you know.
0: And it so, would leave marks.
1: Yeah, they will get – it will leave March. They will get spanking. And a matter of fact, sometimes we'll count them like, you got 25. I got 30 or something like that. That's what – That th-
0: seems excessive, that that many
1: <laughs> – You know what? The thing is, is that my dad will always say – he said, I will stand on the White House. I feel like I'm disciplining my kids the best way that I know how. And he when kids according, according to their – like my twin brother got spankings. He could, he could discipline me by saying, hey, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to listen. Right. So, I think according to what that kid did, whatever the needed for that child. And so, so, I think most of the boys got spankings. And a lot of girls, we didn't get a lot of whippings because we were pretty much, you know, we listened, we were pretty much obedient. Mm-hmm. And my dad could just challenge us. He could just, you know, tell us, okay, we had to do this and we will listen. So, I think it's according to the behavior gotcha. level. Yeah.
0: So, when did you first feel like, there was something missing from you being able to, to stand up for yourself. Uh... You know, I,
1: I, I, I think I've always forced stand up for myself. I think I've, I've been a very, I grew up insecure. I grew up quiet, not sure. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit low self-esteem. Um, I, I felt like uh,
0: what were the thoughts uh, around the low self esteem? Yeah, self-esteem? you know, I don't
1: know. I felt like I I wasn't pretty enough. I always and I see, I would look because back then, you know, I was my skin complexion. And seriously, back then, everybody was trying to lighten up their skin. It was a natural thing where light skin was in, mm-hmm. and dark skin. My sister, year older, had she was a better player. She had light skin. I used to think did they really think she's a better player because she's actually prettier than me? I even thought her hair were prettier and And those things about my thing like man you know i didn't even, i didn't like the way my voice sounded um i didn't even, i didn't even i felt so insecure to talk um in in church we had to do a speech, and it was mandatory and so i'm i want i'm looking i want the shortest speech uh my name is ruthie happy easter i I didn't want to say more, and even saying that, I felt like stay fright I felt like oh my god, what are you gonna say about my voice or looking at me, what are they going to say about my and w-
0: hair? And would people make fun of your voice or your hair? You or? know,
1: people, growing up, you know how you just sort of make fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know at the time. It, it just kid play, you know. Sure. Cousin. Tell, you know, but it wasn't thing.
0: like excessive. It wasn't.
1: No, it was like, oh, you're, you know, you're, they would call me. Actually, I smile. They would call me. But my nickname was Big Gum. Like I had a big smile. Like I love smiling. But it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and I would think about that. And, you know, I would think like, am I really? And I was thinking. I wish I not, but it was always, I wish I was, I wish I was prettier. I wish I was, you know, um, you know, I was, I I was a happy kid. I was, I was like outgoing somewhat, but not like I was still, I was sort of a quiet, but I think I was wanting, wanting attention. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you recall some of the first times where you were being abused and you found it difficult to advocate for your self?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, in my marriage, I felt like I, because, I, you know, you grew up in a faith-based church. It was about, you know, man, you know, is the head of the household. And so, and then I wasn't, because I wasn't used to, I, I got bullied as a kid, too. I'm like, I, um, in school, um, when I was staying with my friends at another part of Mississippi, we were visiting, and I remember a person came over and literally was pushing me, and I could I just I couldn't defend myself. Uh, in school, this girl bullied me and was taking my candy from me. And and finally, I just had a nerve. I thought, you know, I just finally said, you know what, you know, I was scared too. And I finally said, you know what, you're not supposed to treat me that way. And then, and I would, I was ready at that moment to probably fight her. But she's like, I just wanted to be your friend, you know. So
0: wow, what a weird way to go. I know about- her
1: name was Gladys, and I tell these girls I work with. I said, this girl was just taking my candy, being mean to me. She said, I just want to be your friend. Cause I was pretty popular in school cause I played basketball. Mm-hmm. But she would just, she just wanted to be my friend, but she didn't know how to tell me. You know, um, so I think that there, I de- definitely carried over into my adult, adult life being married and not having a voice and being unsure and, and letting someone always dominate the conversation. And so I just, you know, whenever you know, my husband was verbally abusive and saying things, I just felt like I was supposed to just, this is the way marriage is. You know, trouble don't last always. He is the dominant. He's the head of the household. You just got to just go with the flow. You just got to deal with it.
0: What do you think of now when somebody s- says the the man is the head of the household?
1: You know, the man, the head of the household, but still, and they, like, I know people go from a biblical standpoint, the man is head of the household. He, you know, but the Bible also said the man should treat the woman as the Christ treats the church. So you're supposed to treat her with uh, she, her love for you is how you reciprocate uh her her respect for you is how you reciprocate her love. Mm-hmm. And so you, and when, a, when a man puts so much emphasis on the head of the household, generally that probably the man that's abusing because it's like you want to dominate. And I think it's so that's you know to me it's about. You could be the head, but it's more when you wear a uniform, whether you're a cop or whether you're If you wear a uniform, you have to represent that uniform. So if you're going to be the head of the household, you got to be a leader spiritually, emotionally, and you got to be there. So just saying, I'm going to the head of the household, don't make you the head of the household. And mm-hmm. I think that now with with what I've had to go through, you know, uh, just trying to have more of a voice and say, you know what, if you're going to be the head of the household, there's a responsibility that goes with that.
0: Mm-hmm. So give us some moments of that marriage maybe the kind of the progression of the abuse and and what changed that you finally did say enough is enough
1: um you have definitely um you know we have been married 6 years and uh, the physical the first 6 years of the physical was very intense the physical abuse we decided to renew our vows at six years right at the Olympics. And and I felt like this is gonna be the restart, you know, this is gonna pivot, you know, it was up we was on a high with the Olympics and this going to be a great time to renew our vows and and um
0: Did did you feel as if sorry sorry to interrupt you, did you feel as if your athletic victories bought you some type of, you know, credit with him being nicer to you?
1: I actually, you know, uh, not really. I, I think that I felt, you know, and the I think about it that I felt like I wanted my marriage to work so bad that my, my, my career was sewing. I was doing, I was, you know, every team I was making, I was just so, you know, and there were times where I would go to thinking like, man, I wish, you know, I wish, cause I felt bad that my marriage wasn't working. He reminded me that all this stuff don't mean nothing. If your marriage not working, you know, he always reminded me how horrible a wife I was. If you can't go to the store and, and buy grocery and remember to get meat and ingredient, then you're a bad wife, and so you're pretending in front of all these people. And I was, because I didn't really talk, I didn't really speak up for myself, I was starting to believe this, that I was a bad wife for that. And I'm thinking, like, why are they compliment me? And, I, and my prayer would be, God, why are you giving me all these things? Why is basketball—I'm sewing so in basketball, my marriage isn't working. I'm confused, mm-hmm. you know, how— is I want my marriage to work. I I don't want to have a, a statistic that my marriage failed. I You know, some of my sisters had divorced. I don't want a divorce. My mindset is that I want this marriage to work. And and my career had already progressed to where I was able to turn no and yes in my career, like defy the gravity, defy odds. Like, you know, through my high school perseverance, through my college, through the pros, I had, had done things in basketball that ordinary person couldn't do. So... I knew what success was. I knew what you can get great results from working hard. So I'm thinking I just got to work harder. Mm. I gotta my strength, my tenacity, and my fight and my zeal. All that was great in basketball, but it was became a weakness in my marriage because now I don't know how to quit. I don't know how to walk away. I don't know how to say no. I'm like, and I don't. I'm not hearing what the counselor is telling me. How can you tell me to have two getaway bags when I'm a optimistic? I believe that this marriage can work, and you telling me that. In two weeks, that I could be leaving home because my husband abused me. He said, This is, you may be in your honeymoon stage. I'm just being real. And I would think, like, I'm not paying you $120 an hour to tell me to leave my husband. I'm paying you to tell me how to fix him because I'm not leaving
0: this marriage. Do, do you know how insane that sounds today? <laughs> I, I <know>. Trying to <laughs> fix him. Yeah. I
1: want to fix him. Like, you just got, I just got to work a little bit harder. I know he can be fixed. This man, we used to dress a light. Mm-hmm. This man used to bring me my favorite snacks when I would you know, coming in from a trip. He would bring me my frozen grapes and my snack world cookies. This man would great he would bring me give me a nice gift on my anniversary saying I love you. So he has to love me. So I myself, there's something else I have to do. So just be patient with me. Don't tell me that this marriage is gonna end. Don't tell me that it's not gonna work. I'm not, not hearing you. it. I don't know what it means to walk away.
0: And it it's must like, have been so hard too, with him doing the nice things.
1: It was to it's, reconcile. I'm just like, oh my goodness, it's like this counselor's wrong. This man really does love me.
0: When when did it change?
1: It changed when I I, I just couldn't wrap my head around like this man because it was my first love. He was my first, and I'm a virgin at 23. And I, you know, that's like, you know, it's like this is my man. This is the love of my life. I'm gonna be married with him the rest of my life. This is what I yeah. vision what our kids will look like. And when I renewed my vows, I went, I renewed my vows with a black eye and a swollen face. On my way after the Olympics, I went to Turkey and the death with it, physical got really intense. And there were times where I didn't, I literally in my mind thought, that's where I almost threw my gold medals away. I'm like, I don't deserve these. I thought I threw, I started to throw them in the trash can. I was standing in front of the trash can. I just want to drop them in there. I don't, I don't even deserve these. My marriage isn't working. My husband's never happy. And so finally, after a couple of months, two or three months, the Olympic was August. So by November, October, November, and he, what year was this? This is the 96th. Okay. He said, I think that the, the, I've, I've done enough to you. I think, you know, it's time for at to end. So let's just renew our vows. I'm like, oh, great. You know, we can renew our vows now. We can start over all this. was See, I'm glad I didn't quit. I'm glad I didn't give up on him. So we start planning a wedding. So we go home in December and the wedding is in three days. So I plan a wedding in three, four months without even being there. I didn't want any mishap. I paid for everything. I'm like, I don't want anything to mess with this moment. This is a moment that's gonna change the life. My husband and I, we're gonna be happy now. He's gonna be the man that I dreamed of him to be. And so when we get to we went to Alabama first, which is where his mom lives, and and so we spent one night there and then the next day he generally drives but the next day at noon, it's like he said, I want you to drive. I'm thinking like, okay. And then I see him with a brown bag and I'm like, Oh my goodness. He must have something to drink. He was a he was an alcoholic and I'm thinking like, man, he don't have something to drink. So maybe he'll drink and just go to sleep. But sure, we get in the car and and I really didn't want to make eye contact with him. I'm hoping that and I started like to put on the radio and just so I just want him to just go to sleep. And he started talking a little bit. And when he get into that mentality, you know, talking like, oh, you think you're this and you think you're that. And I'm thinking like, okay, I hope you just go to sleep. And all of a sudden he just, we we were a mile down the road, and he just hit me. And he just like, it's just like he hit me so hard. and I'm driving. I'm like, Anthony, Anthony, please stop. You know, I'm driving, I'm driving. And I'm thinking like, and my counselor told me that, he had guns and that. My husband fit the profile of someone killing me and killing himself. So I'm thinking all this in my head. And I'm thinking he always kept at least three or four guns with him. And so I said, if I run, he could just shoot me. So I'm thinking, like, so I just stopped. And I said, please stop, stop, stop. And he was, like, within, like, minutes, my face, like, you know, he said, look at what you made me do. And um, and he uh, said, we went to a gas station. He said, clean yourself up. Then I said, well, maybe we shouldn't even go. We shouldn't even do the wedding. He said no, no. Let's go ahead and go. So we, I drove home, and that was the most agonizing moment driving four or what, five hours.
0: When you when you hear yourself, you know, recount yeah. him saying, "Look what you made me do." What what feelings come up?
1: You know, I it is like I think about myself like how how vulnerable, how naive I was that they, they think that. Like, and I said he would make me repeat it. This was your fault, you made me say, Yeah, I made you do it. He would make me repeat it. And I I just and I think about it. I'm like, wow, how like we we are destroyed by the lack of knowledge. I didn't have I didn't know what the best looked like. And me believe it or not, in counseling, he would ask me, How did it go? I said, Things are great. He, and I would tell him about some of the things he would say. He was like, How can you think they were great? I'm like, he didn't hear me. He, three days he didn't hit me, or a week maybe. But he said all these things to you. That's not okay. I said, yes, it is. It's okay as long as he don't hit me. He said, no, it's not okay. And when I hear myself now, when I think about, it, I'm like, oh my goodness. And when I look, go in my diary and I and I read some of the things that was said, and I just like, wow, amazing for me to go through that, not knowing, thinking I was okay because he at the time, if he weren't physical. But I look back and think like, my wow, you know, I, I was there naive, and I just didn't know. And I just, I only knew what I knew and I was living in the moment of just trying to make my marriage work and didn't know the danger that I was in because I'm thinking like, as long as he's not physical with me, I'll be okay.
0: Yeah. So let's pick back up where I where I cut you off. So uh, he said, look what look what, look you, what made you made me, me do. Did. And I was like, yeah, I'm
1: like, look, I'm like, Ruthie, what are you doing? You keep making him do this. And I re- really was feeling like, I was making him do what he did to me and I'll be transparent and say that I went I, I live with the two things that happened in my life that I live with fear and I live with guilt. I felt like when we first, you know, I had an abortion when we first got married, and I felt like our marriage was was cursed. I felt like whatever I went through, I deserved it. I felt like the only way I would be healed would be or be forgiven is by his his hands and, and i felt like and that one of the reason why i didn't want to give up on the marriage because of what i had what happened and i felt like i just had to endure it and if it cost me my life i was you know just living with the guilt of that and then that was in the beginning and then six months six years later in my marriage uh i went outside the marriage and I felt like two wrongs don't make it right, and I felt like I was just as bad as he was, and I just felt like if this marriage killed me, I would never leave because I I was wrong, and this is the marriage. And so my mentality was that this is how I may end up dying. I may end up dying by the hands of my husband because of the guilt that I felt. and And I felt like, you know, I was, I felt trapped, but I felt like every day I said, Lord, every day is this, is this the day that this will turn around? And this the day that I'm forgiven. And this is the day that that He not only would God forgive me, but it's the day that my husband forgives me. And so I lived every day hoping that that the next day that I woke up and I felt like. And that's why I was confused because all these other great things were happening in my life, and and but my marriage was failing, and I lived with this burden and the guilt in my life, and I just didn't I didn't know if victory was staying, I didn't know if victory was leaving, and I was so confused. And what made me realize that is when we when we went home, and I had a black eye. And my family asked me, when I walked in, they asked me, you know, what happened to you? My brother asked me what happened to me. And I said, I ran into a door and I said, I'll be okay. And he said, you sure that what happened? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and my brother called me in the back. He said, that's not what happened to you, is it? And I said, no. He said, why are you living like this? I said, I'll be okay. I said, we, we, we've both gone through some things. I said, this marriage is going to work. We just got to when we renew our vows we go start over and we're gonna be fine. I really believe that. And uh but my dad called our meeting that night and he asked me what happened to my face and to my eye and, and I told him and so my family had this two hour meeting and this is two days before the wedding and my dad said, You know, you don't have to go through with this and I said, I have to. This I, I cannot I cannot turn back right now and and uh my brother was all upset and mad and stuff and I said, Well this is my life. This is my journey, and I have to endure it. Once we renew our vows, if he can stay sober, I'm going to be happy. And one of my brothers said, yeah, if he can stay sober. And so I really believed in my heart that, that that our life would change from that, from renewing our vows. And um, and many people ask me, like, if your father knew that it was a physical marriage, physical relationship, physical marriage, why did he marry you? And I said, really, after learning what I've learned about domestic violence, if he hadn't married me, I would have really gotten someone else to marry me. I was not nowhere near rock bottom. I was not ready to walk mm-hmm. away. And so the thing is that my dad was giving me that space to make my own decision. And so that's what I've learned is that until that woman decided that enough is enough, she's going to stay there. And, and, and she, a woman errors leaving seven times that she leaves and go back. So you have to love at a distance, and you have to really give her that space and make her own decision, but let him know that you're there. So what changed? And my father told me, he said, you know, I can't tell you what to do, when to leave. He said, you have to decide that on your own. But he said, I will, please, please listen, that if he ever threaten your life, verbally threaten you, to, to harm you, even though the physical is harm, but if he ever threaten, you know, that you really take him seriously, because he probably will. When he gets to the point where he's bold enough to tell you he's ready to do it. And so I can remember um after their marriage, the physical abuse diminished but the psychological abuse, you know, him, you know, bringing out his guns and and having him in the bed, you know, when we um, you know, maybe had an argument, he would put them in the bed, where I was supposed to sleep, or or things like that. Uh but when he one morning he uh, told me that uh, you know that I was talking back to him the night before, and I said I wasn't talking back; I was just asking him. I said, you know, what? we renewed our vows; we supposed to move forward, forget about the past. He said, that's talking back to me. He said, if you ever talk back to me, you know, I'll kill you. And this was, he said, you can smell my breath; I haven't been drinking; I'm sober, and I'm I'm speaking from the heart; I'm speaking real. Like, you know, you're not gonna disrespect me anymore, and if you do, and so that moment, I knew. That it was time for me to make a change, and that and that moment was very sad for me because I knew that our marriage was over, and so uh, and probably within a week later, uh, the the moment uh, I, he came home, and I was in the kitchen, and he went to the living room and he sat down, and he and I could tell by his voice and definitely by his eyes when that when the moments are not going to be good, mm-hmm. and so he I, he called me to come to the, the living room, and it, and I said, okay, I'll come in a few minutes, and I looked over, and I saw him, he had a good in one hand, and a beer bottle in the other hand, and I'm like, okay, this is not good. Uh, and he was calling me. The- <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and nah, I'm just saying, because I'm thinking like, okay, hopefully he'll just fall asleep, yeah. and then he called me again, I'm like, okay, I don't want to go over there, but, you know, and so I pretended I was on the phone with my, with my dad, and I said, I'm on the phone with my dad, and uh, I'll, come on, I'll come in a few minutes. He said, I don't care who you're on the phone with. And generally, when I'm on the phone with my dad, he will sort of respect that moment. Mm-hmm. And I knew then, I'm like, okay, this is not going to be good. So I'm thinking, like, I either got to run out the front door, and then he could just shoot me, or I run through the garage and let the garage up, but I won't have to have him get in the car because he'll hear it. Mm-hmm. So i am cut the play like, what should I do? What should I do? And so I decided to, uh i all I heard this loud sound, and that was him throwing a shoe in the kitchen. And I'm thinking like, okay, I got to make a move. Because he had told me within a week before that he would kill me. And so I, ran, I ended up letting the garage up and running down to a neighbor. So I never, well, I left there. I left and came out to California. And I actually had professional movers to move all my stuff. I never went back to that house. Uh, but the interesting thing is that I was still, even though I left and I came to California and I was going through intense counseling, I was still wanting to go back. Uh, my mind was still there. I was still wanting to go back because I felt like I had failed. and I didn't fail. I, I wasn't used to failing. I didn't want to feel like a failure. Like, How did my marriage not work? You didn't do enough, or what did you not do? And I felt this guilt that I had failed at my marriage and it, it, mm-hmm. it didn't feel good.
0: Do you feel like looking back that that was kind of uh, what do you attribute that to? That attitude that it's all on you. You got to take the blame. You got to make it work. And enduring abuse is better than a marriage failing. Do you do you attribute that to kind of that? I think,
1: you know, I think I've gone through a lot of counseling since, and I think I was, I have a, rescu- a rescuer. I have this rescuer mentality of helping people, helping people heart heal to help, you know, see their weaknesses and Want to make it better, gotcha. and when I talk to my sisters, the one that have gone through abusive marriages, we're all we all agree like we we are rescuers. We're, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to be their god, and we have the heart, the compassionate heart, as my mom did. And it's hard for us to 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 uh, dwell on the negative. It's like we wanna we we, we wanna say okay, they're good in this area. We just need to help them in this other area, and we didn't realize we we were enabling them. We didn't realize that we were the biggest enabler that we were trying to. And there's a point you do help, you assist, but there's a point where they have to want to help. Mm-hmm. And we were just, we really, we were in God's way of helping that person. And so we want to be their God. And that's what I've learned that I've enabled. And I've had to go to counseling myself. It's like, why do I keep getting in this position? Why was I such, like, why am I over helping? It's because of the, the heart to help and to rescue and, uh, and it's hard. Like I went to a workshop this past summer and I was just like, and I was really like thinking about like, man, how could I have lived through that? Like what well, I didn't know, like how did I, I went through that. I was complete, I, the cycle of abuse and the honeymoon stage, all different things. There was a, there was a a, a picture that they had. I, I fit right in the cycle of abuse and the verbal, the psychological, the financial abuse, the spiritual abuse. And I just like, man, how I just I didn't know it was so it was so new to me, and I just I lived in that, and I'm thankful that I was able to come out of it obviously alive and too, with my sanity, mm-hmm. and so that's why I I'm so passionate about you know traveling and speaking and trying to be a voice for women and um and trying to really help them um to know that they have, that they could take their power back, and fight them in spite of what they've been through.
0: So if there's somebody out there listening right now and they think they might be in an abusive relationship, but they're not sure, what are some of the red flags that, that you've learned?
1: You know, the, the red flag is that uh, the control, uh, the, the pattern, it's, it's not, the abuse is not something that just happened. You know, every blue moon happened, you know, like some happened one time or maybe twice, but it's a pattern of put you down, a pattern of making you feel like you lesser than, uh, a pattern of calling you names, and especially if you got kids, uh, you know them, uh, dis- you know disrespecting you with kids, disrespecting your public, and obviously the physical is obvious, right? But the psychological and the mind games, it just feel like you, and you really lose your self worth as a woman.
0: And it and it doesn't start out that it way. Doesn't. It starts out with praise and, and the knight in shining armor. Yes,
1: if yeah, It and, makes... Because actually when, it, it started out very cute and enticing when he, you know, want to know everything that you do and he, the very thing that was a strength becomes a weakness and he take things and, and you make, it's like, they, they are so good at manipulating, and turning things around. Like, you could break a glass and drop it, he could drop a glass and break it like, like, well, if you hadn't made, if you hadn't put too much soap on it when you washed the dishes, that wouldn't have done it. Okay. Or it's like it's a base how they turn things around and you make you think
0: you're going crazy. So there's generally a lack of them taking responsibility. Definitely
1: no responsibility. Every, if they blame every they blame someone for everything that happened in their life. It's someone's fault. And they blame you. They constantly blame you. And then also, too, they sabotage moments. They sabotage, he sabotaged so many times we're supposed to be going to the movies, supposed to be going places. They He self-sabotaged. Oh, you—you you five minutes late, so I don't want to go to the movies. I'm like, it would just truly really just tear at me. That was one of the biggest things that I enjoy for us doing, and it would just make me feel so just like you just like how could I ruin this moment? All I had to do is just be on time. Mm-hmm. And we would go to counseling. The counselor said, you know what? Just go in there. Wait, she she has her life. Don't don't ruin it. You go if you are there ten minutes early. Let her call when she come. Mm-hmm. If she missed the preview, she missed the preview. Don't try to control every moment. Don't try to control like she's not your child.
0: The counselor said this to him. Yeah, and and how did he respond? was
1: like, yeah, he wouldn't even really let me speak. in counsellors. he, the counselor had to tell him like, it's her time to speak. If they're trying to really take your words and your voice, and I let you speak, it's really when they try to treat you like you're their child. Mm-hmm. Everything like, like you're their kid, like you're their partner, you're their wife. Right. They shouldn't have to. They should. You have a voice. Try to get you it's Not no, they don't. You don't. You have a right to speak. It's okay to agree to this way. You can tell your kid, I don't want to hear from you. You know, you don't speak right. because that's your parent as a 10 year old, you know, but as a, as a companion, that you still have a right to speak, you know, with respect. But if they totally try to take your voice away, that's a sign.
0: Do you ever feel like the idea that the man is the head of the household can contribute to that?
1: The man head the household is so old fashioned. It's so traditional. You know, now, women actually uh, work in women. It, it, you, the man respects, and, and a woman, and I'm trying to sound biblical, but it really doesn't say in the Bible where the man, the woman has to really love the man. She has to respect him, but the woman respects the man based on how he reciprocates her love. Right. The woman reacts to him, reacts to the love that he gives. So the man has a household. Okay, if you're gonna be at a household, wear a uniform. You go to right. work as a fireman and you work as a, pop, a police. You wear a uniform to represent. You can't just wear a, a jacket and, and the jeans. You right. can't just have, everything is a uniform. You have to represent the police. You have, they have a code. Right. You have to represent. So as a man has a the household, there's a thing you have to represent.
0: Right, but for me, I have I have a hard time accepting that that power isn't shared. That that one person is more powerful than another person. That, that just seems to me to just make it ripe for in an, an, an imbalance. And
1: to me that's a sign when they, um, when they constantly um head of the household. Right. That's already a sign that they try to be macho. Right. And a lot of time out of insecurity, it could be a lot of reasons for insecurity. You know, I right. got control, I'm the head of the household. And it could be a lot of women that have a very successful, that you know, that have made it, and then women that are strong. Because if you make it in your career as a woman, you know, you you have an independence about you, and maybe that man feel insecure, like, oh, she she's not gonna need me, or I'm losing control over her just because she she thrives and she's showing. Celebrate her, mm-hmm. you know, and, and celebrate her gifts, is, and and don't get insecure by those that try to control her. And that's what I see a lot in men getting insecure trying to control her. But I would say celebrate her is a equal to me. You grow together and you encourage her. You lift, and, and she has to do the same. Lift each other up, celebrate each other and communication is huge. Right. Communicate.
0: Yeah, I didn't uh, I, I wanted to tread gently because I didn't know if religiously that's something that you still oh, yeah. believed in and I and I d I didn't oh. want to come across as insulting. Um
1: No my faith uh, has you know, like, uh, has been huge in my life. And, and, and to be honest, I, my dad said, you don't have to beat people across the head of the Bible. Well, I don't try to beat people across the head of the Bible, but I have to be transparent that my faith has been, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of my imperfections, my faith has been the ground, has been the, uh, the, uh, the thread that have really kept me strong and kept me insane. And, and it really allows me now to soar and to thrive and to go places and travel and, and to go to women prisons and, and as a matter of fact, it's ninety four percent of women in prison from domestic violence. And so going there and sharing my story, traveling overseas for the U.S. Embassy, really just has really helped me heal. Mm-hmm. This has been only three years, three and a half years that I've started publicly talking about it. So i uh I've been
0: progress. When you say ninety four percent of the women in prison, they're from, in prison for domestic violence. Yes, okay. from.
1: You know, the result of domestic violence, taking domestic, you know, in their own hand. I've heard stories when I would go there. I've heard stories that really broke my heart. And these women say, I'm serving his time. I got tired of living that way. So I took matters in my own hand. Mm-hmm. And so the, and the, and the, and the sad thing about it is that the mental abuse, some of the women went through just mental abuse. Mm-hmm. It got to be so bad. And it, it really never got physical. The mental abuse had them come to play suicide. Had them just like, and then finally they said, you yeah, I got to do something about it. And it's sad that they really was trying to protect their family, protect them, but they end up doing something now. Their life and their freedom get taken away. So where do you, their mental abuse can be just as hard as the physical. Where do you draw the line? Where do you get to a point where, you know, it has to, somewhere where enough is enough. And so that's why the, you know, I go to programs like Doors of Hope Ministries, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, community for peace, arise uh, rise above these organizations, uh, trying to help women find a place where, you know, you gotta know your worth and your value. Mm-hmm. Love not supposed to look like this. You know, mm-hmm. my program, my Aim High program with girls, we're talking about this month. The best what's violence. the name of your program? Aim with- High? Yeah. And it, yeah. And it's, it just, it's so awesome to just see these young girls and say, hey, you know, and I share with them and I'm transparent with them. Mm-hmm. And I, hey, this is not the way love, love not supposed to look like this. And these mm-hmm. girls, you know, 12 or 13 years old, been in three relationships already. They said, as a matter of fact, October is a national get a boyfriend month. And I said, it's for real? How ironic is that it's a national domestic violence month? You know, <laughs> go figure. So we talked about healthy relationships and that. You know what? Love yourself, value you, know your worth. And no matter what you've done, you still deserve to be treated a certain way and talk to a certain way. And that's what I'm trying to steal in my 10-year-old daughter. She actually saw the documentary that ESPN did, Mighty Ruthie, and she was like, Bobby, that happened to you. Why would he do that? I said, well, people will do some mean things, hope, but, you know, she, and she would just hug me and say, you're the best mommy in the world. How could somebody do that to you? You know, so I have, I owe it to her to be transparent say, you know what? So what is I supposed to talk to you that way? It's not supposed to treat you that way.
0: Give me a, a, a moment of you being able to share your story with somebody who's in the middle of it. And uh, you feel oh, like-
1: there are so many moments uh, I've had in the last three years of sharing with women. Uh, there is a, a young I spoke for St. John's in Sacramento about a couple of years ago. I spoke at it's a place where women go that experience all type of abuse and they graduate. And so I went to the event. And after I got done, this young lady came up to me and gave me the biggest hug like she didn't want to let me go. And she was actually going through. A really nasty divorce uh she was going through so much uh he was he still had they still share custody of the kids he was making the, you know her kids were older like 13 14 15 the kids was thinking she was a bad marker he was instilling in them so she was having a not only was she going through this psychological abuse he was breaking, the divide her with the kids it was just so hard and so i just you know i we stayed we stayed in touch and i just tried to encourage her and say you know what you know, God got this, and just, uh, it just really tried to lift her up. And so that, to me, she just, she was just so like, thank you so much for saving my life. She said, I just, I didn't know where to turn. Uh, I've spoken in a lot of places. I went overseas to, uh, Samoa. A lot of women have been through a lot over there, and, and just and a lot of feedback saying, thank you for giving me hope. Thank you for making me feel I'm not alone. I actually have these that are where, uh, domestic violence happens a lot on reservations. Mm-hmm. And, I, I wear these because I stand in the gap for a lot of the women there. It's actually the percentage and they don't have the resources that we have. And to be able to stand in the gap for these women has been you know, has been amazing. It's been like, you know, just the fact that showing up and being there and being accessible and they can talk to me, that they can feel me, they can touch me, they can give me a hug, it edifies them and give them a space to say, you know, I'm not going through this by myself. So it, it means a lot. You know, and there's it, a quote that I love it says that, you know, to the world you might be one person, but to one person
0: you could be the world. I love it. I love so. it. Ruthie, thank you so much for um, not only sitting down and uh-huh. getting so vulnerable, yeah. and, uh, but for all the advocacy that you do, and uh, you're just a, a shining light. I love it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for giving the space to share. to. Really, hopefully my voice, my raspy voice right now <laughs> can help women uh, out there, young girls that feel like uh that they have a uh, voice and that they have a place and that in spite of what they've gone through, they can take their power back. And that's what it's it's about at the end of the day. How can I still rewrite my story? Do I have enough in me to rewrite my story in spite of what I've gone through and to take my power back? And also to the listeners out there, there's a national a hotline. Uh, there's a number you can call. That if you feel that you're going through some things and you don't and you're not ready to be open about it, you're not ready to expose who you are, you can share uh, your story without telling your name, mm-hmm. and they could give you resources on where you are to help you. And so, to me, I, I encourage the women, whoever go through this, not to go through it alone. Find someone you can trust. Find someone that you can share it with because it is a very lonely place to go through this abuse. And I have someone you could talk to.
0: I'll I'll get, uh, some links from you and I'll put those under the show notes okay. uh, for this, for this episode. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. Ruthie. Thank you so
1: much.
0: I loved, love talking to her. I, I love it when a guest just gets so vulnerable and, and I have a front row seat for it. It's, it's so cool. Many thanks to, to Ruthie. One of our sponsors for today is the app Calm. Uh, If you could use better quality sleep or a little more relaxation in your life, Calm's a good app for you. It's the number one app for sleep and relaxation. Uh, They have sleep stories. They're kind of like bedtime stories for adults, and they can help you fall into a deep, deep sleep. In So so deep, your loved ones will think you're dead, which uh, can be problematic. (laughs) The stories are narrated by... Iconic voices like LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman. And if you go to calm.com metal, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. There's hundreds of sleep stories and tons of other stuff like soothing music from artists like Sam Smith. Uh, they have guided meditations, breathing exercises, and a lot more. Over 60 million people have used Calm. So join them today and get the sleep you need tonight. For a limited time you guys can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. It comes with unlimited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com slash mental. That's calm.com slash mental. We also have a new sponsor uh, named Lightstream and normally I don't accept ads for financial products because so much in my opinion, of the financial industry is unethical and predatory, but I, after talking to them and asking a lot of questions, I I, I felt like Lightstream is different. It's a credit card uh, consolidation loan, and they have rates as low as five point nine five APR with if you use auto pay, and their rates do change from day to day. So if you Uh, You see an advertised rate, and then you go back a week later, the rate might have changed. But once you lock in a rate with them, it does not change, and that to me is a really important thing. Um, What can I tell you about it? There's no fees, um, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, and no prepayment penalties. Uh, The application is quick and easy, and you can apply right from your phone. And Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. So, for you guys, apply now and get a special interest rate discount. And the only way to get this discount is to go to slash mental. That's L I G H T S T R E A M dot slash mental. And it is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a 0.50 auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash mental for more information. Let's get to some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls it. Pardon my, my noise. <laughs> That's not her name. Her name is flea uh, fleabag is my religion. Oh man, that was such a good show. So maybe the best two seasons of, of any show, anywhere. She writes, I've always struggled with body image issues, despite being the naturally skinny girl. In grade school, I was teased for being so thin, and yet in adolescence and young adulthood, I felt disgusted by my body, not finding it thin enough. I wondered why I hated my body so much when it fits the American standard of the, quote, ideal woman's body. After a lot of therapy, I saw the roots of my hatred and have begun healing. Then I went home to visit my mother. She was talking about how disgusting one larger woman looked in a bikini, asking, how could she let herself look like that? I just calmly posed the question, Mom, why do you hate fat people? She replied, I don't hate them. I'm just repulsed by them. After some more prompting, I confessed to her that her language makes me feel nervous about gaining any weight before coming home, for fear that she'll no longer love me. I feel proud of myself for being vulnerable and starting a healthy dialogue. Her reply? Oh, honey, I'll love you no matter what. But if you start packing on the pounds, I'm going to let you know. Oh my God. The definition of some. This is from the love survey filled out by Britt. And she writes, I love sitting on my front porch when it's dark and pouring rain. I love the silence of our world, and the only thing I can hear is the rain and my inhaling of a cigarette that I would deny smoking if anyone ever asked. Ah, that's so good. Any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love to hear more surviving stories from women who were sexually abused as children and how they cope as adults. Uh, I know that there are probably dozens of episodes that we've done so a good if you're looking for an episode from the past that as opposed to looking for an episode from the future which is very difficult try googling a subject or keyword that you're interested in and the keyword mental pod and episodes will pop up that fit that description oh also uh good news The back catalog, except for the first two years, uh, so going all the way back to the beginning of 2013, uh, all those episodes are now available, so check them out. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Panda. She writes, the first time I got help, I was labeled with a borderline personality disorder, even though I don't fit enough criteria for the diagnosis. The psychiatrist said that my chronic depression is just a symptom of the underlying BPD. During my years of treatment, some professionals pointed me in the direction of PTSD, but I never had a, quote, before the trauma and marginalized the abuse in my childhood since I never got beaten enough to stay at the hospital or something like that. A year ago, a therapist told me about complex PTSD and the effects emotional abuse and neglect can have. After almost 20 years of ineffective behavioral therapy, I decided to try a trauma based therapy and went on a search for quote, the truth. Unfortunately, the documentation of child protective services had been destroyed already. Last week, I took the time to visit my aunt and grandmother a few cities over to talk to them in person about what they remember. They told me one heartbreaking story after another. After a lifetime of doubting my own memories, I finally had witnesses, proof what I have experienced was real, real and cruel. The realization left me with a sheer horror from like Lovecraft's books. And at the same time, I'm so happy that there's a justification for the pain and sadness I feel. It's like the way my life turned out finally makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. Man, having our our pain and our trauma... Witnessed and validated is, I, I I think, an essential step. If we're going to heal and we're going to ever start to feel comfortable in our own skin and able to have connective relationships, uh, platonic, professional, and romantic, I think we have to feel some type of validation around that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by... A woman who calls herself weird drunk fetishes. Uh, She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. When I am drunk, I masturbate to porn where there is a much older man having sex with a young female. This is weird because I'm a lesbian and would never be aroused by, by this type of porn when sober. I wonder if this has something to do with when I was younger, my parents got divorced and my mom kept trying to convince me that my dad was sexually molesting me. You listed your environment that you were raised in as stable and safe. That is not stable and safe. And if your father was molesting you and your mother was concerned, there are other ways to go about dealing with that than just trying to convince you that that happened. You know, if your mom really cared, I imagine she would have gotten you into some type of therapy, or I guess I shouldn't say that your mom didn't care, but anyway... Uh, this confused me a lot when I was young, and I didn't know how to process it. Could my drunk porn preferences just be an extension of my confusion as a child? I think about this a lot, but don't talk to anyone about it because I'm so ashamed. Well, first of all, don't ever be ashamed of the things that, that turn you on. Um, you know, easier said than done. But for most people... The things that turn them on are the things that also cause them anxiety in everyday life. And who knows where this is coming from, but I think therapy would be a really great place for you to start in investigating this um, and processing all of those feelings. Darkest Secrets, I lie a lot about socializing. I moved six months ago after graduating college, and when my friends or family or people from work ask me about my social life, I lie and make up stuff about friends that I don't actually have. I have no interest in going out and making friends. I know there are many ways to do so, but I really don't want to, so I would just rather lie about it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I already shared my drunk ones. Sober, I am super super turned on by doing intimate stuff while in public places or in places where I'm not supposed to. I feel fine about sharing this since while I engage in this fantasy, I make sure that nobody could actually discover us so nobody is harmed and me and my partner can have a good time. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could have told my dad that I was sorry for all the ways I have fucked up, but I can't, can't since he died when I was in high school, and at that point I was still fucking up hardcore. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared my sober sexual fantasies with friends because I think it is a kink that I'm not ashamed of. They were totally cool with it. I haven't shared the other stuff with people because I don't want people to judge me. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better, but I wish I could talk to someone about some childhood stuff without holding myself back or feeling judged. It would be awesome if you if you did that. That would be really, I think it'd be really helpful. And thank you for sharing all of that. This is an email I got from uh, a woman who calls herself Anne, and she writes, Hi dear, my name is Anne from America. Uh, well, hello, my name is Paul from America. Words cannot express how grateful I am to contact you for a cordial relationship. Well, you are welcome that I have allowed you to email me. A lot of people I won't allow to email me. And the lengths I go to to make sure that people can't email me. I have a desk at Google where I go. And I have a whole team of people making sure that I don't get unwanted emails. And they said, There's this lady, Anne from America, that's trying to email you. Should we let it through? And I said, Well, what kind of a relationship is is Anne interested in? They said, a cordial one. And I said, you know, normally I only accept prim and proper or toxic relationships. But I'm gonna I'm gonna open the door on this Anne from America and explore a cordial relationship. And honestly, my my secret hope is that Anne and I can progress to a really sick, enmeshed relationship where we we get matching tattoos. Mine says Anne from America, and hers says fuckface. Continuing, Therefore, I want to know more about you so you can assist me with investment. Well, if you're investing, I am your guy. I was a theater major and a lot of people don't realize the financial expertise that comes from half-assing a play by Bertolt Brecht, but I can look at numbers and instantly tell you, that's a nine, that's an eight. And I think a lot of times that's enough to know where to invest. But Ann, thank you. Thank you. And you're welcome. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Amps Lost A M P S L O S T. She identifies as pansexual. And then she specifies, took a long time for me to be sexually active, and I started with women first. Uh, She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was homeless for most of my life, and raised by an addict single mom. She was the victim of sexual abuse, uh, which uh, one instance she reported it, and another instance she never reported When I was eight, until I was almost nine, my mom's boyfriend touched my girly bits. It wasn't until he hurt me, oh man, in parentheses, ripped me, by raping me did I report him. And that, after that, it was like I had a stamp on my head that told all the men my mom would bring home to use. With that, I was an easy target. All you had to do was get me alone and do what you wanted. I wouldn't scream. At one point, my mom watched totally loaded as a man put his hand up my shirt. That was the day I lost all respect for my mom. It wasn't when she blamed me for allowing her boyfriend to rape me, or blaming me for his death, or her insistence that the drugs were the only way she could look at me. It was her watching me be victimized and not stopping it. Years later, my uncle, my mom's brother, started touching me, insisting that it was payment for living with him and paying the rent for my mom, little sis, and myself. I allowed this to go on for four years until I graduated from high school, and that night he decided that he needed more than just groping me and wanted it all. I left the next morning hoping he wouldn't touch my little sis, but I couldn't sit by any more. The alcohol and drugs weren't numbing me enough to go through more pain. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Oh yeah, I have a vast history of abuse. From my mom, it was mostly emotional abuse, making me feel worthless or not wanting to live. From my mom's many boyfriends, there were many times where I was beat for not remembering things or not following through with instructions. And from my older sister, she tried to kill me on so many occasions. She would also beat me until I would black out. I took a lot of these beatings so my little sis wouldn't. I don't regret that at all either. Man, this is so heavy. Any positive experience with the abusers? With my mom, yes, there were many good memories that I have with her, and I try to focus on them, but since getting clean, and thank God you got clean, I placed a lot of boundaries in place for our relationship. One, because I used with her, and two, because I have a son who I want to know my family, and I want to protect from... All of her use and abuse I allow her a visit every month with my son and if she is using or in a bad mood we leave and I don't talk to her for a time but we have more good visits than bad darkest thoughts about liking when my mom's boyfriend was touching me it felt good physically and emotionally and that's really common by the way and that does not make it okay Uh, about wanting to die, slit my wrists and fill the bathtub with my blood so I could not feel the pain of my past anymore. I would visualize my stomach exploding while I would binge, thinking about all the times my older sister called me a cow and responding, yes, I am. I also thought of killing my little sister to keep her from the pain I had endured for years, which made me feel like a monster and super depressed and suicidal. Darkest Secrets I've had incest with my cousin while high. I've almost stabbed my mom while drunk and high. I almost cut off my uncle's dick after he tried to rape me, Uh, was sober, and got high after I wimped out. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am not one to fantasize about sex much. The first time I had sex, I was 20, and the first time I ever masturbated, I was 17. The only time I ever fantasized uh, was in late high school, and it was about my teacher. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? A lot to my mom, knowing she is using again and has been for many years. That I know the man she has claimed is my father isn't really my blood. That I blame my mom for my miscarriage, all of the negativity she expressed, and that I had after announcing it. How much I hated her for feeling that way, too. What, if anything, do you wish for? For my mom to get clean and help with her mental illnesses. For my older sister to get help with her mental illnesses. For my little sis to move out and feel the freedom of abuse. I think she means freedom from abuse. For my son to never feel abuse. And him to never see my residual results of my abuse for my husband to be more understanding about my feelings in life and be more willing to hear about it that is a really really important one you know a lot of times people when they're raised in abusive environments they'll seek out partners that kind of repeat that abuse because it feels familiar and i think healing and starting to feel whole and autonomous, is greatly aided, if we're in a relationship, greatly aided by that person being compassionate and being on the same team with us. Have you shared these things with others? Some, yes, but not all. I'm not sure if some of the things will only cause more pain or if I'm ready to say them out loud or to the people i love because no matter how bad my mom hurt me i still love her and i hate that sometimes how do you feel after writing these things down some relief that i finally came clean about some of the stuff i have done or been through it's freeing in a way is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences that i am a success story and so can you and so can you be I am the first in my family to graduate from high school and now from college. I have three and a half years clean and sober. I have a loving family that is abuse-free and life is meant to be enjoyed, not lived through or survived from. Anne, thank you. you. You went so deep, so deep with that and congrats on your sobriety. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Andrea. And she writes, I love my dog. He's 13 weeks old and his name is Chewy. My boyfriend of five years gave him to me for my birthday. Um, This was previously discussed. I don't think anyone should give a pet as a gift without knowing for sure that it's wanted. I love this dog, though, because of what he represents. I had an abusive childhood, survived an abusive marriage, and I'm still standing. After my divorce, I remember looking back at my life and seeing nothing but failure and destruction. I felt worthless. I could hear my mother's and ex-husband's voices both telling me I would never, how I would never amount to anything, never contribute to society. I was told constantly that I was worthless. I went into therapy a little over four years ago after I started dating my boyfriend. we had gotten into a bad argument, and I found myself doing the same bad coping mechanisms. Push him away, blame him for my negative emotions, shoplifting, overeating, etc. I had a moment where a voice in my head clearly said, This is a good man, and if you keep it up, you're going to lose him. You need help. So I made an appointment with a therapist who turned out to be Shit. (laughs) And that's it. That's the end of the love survey. Now, I made another appointment with a different one who was probably good, but I couldn't connect to him. I eventually, and I know it may never go completely away. I eventually, oh, I eventually found my current therapist and slowly but surely she has helped me silence that ugly, negative, and untrue voice. I'm still working on it and I know it may never go completely away, but I've also learned how to argue with it. to prove to myself that those are lies and I don't have to listen. In the four plus years I've been in therapy, I moved out of my abusive parents' home into an apartment, adopted three cats, held down a job without getting fired, a first for me, and picked up a great, supportive, amazing, and diverse group of friends. A few months ago, my boyfriend and I moved into a house together. A dream I never imagined could be true. It's nothing short of a miracle to me, and it gave us a yard for my beautiful, loving, sweet puppy to grow up and play in. To me, my dog symbolizes a joyful future of worth, happiness, and freedom. He gives me love. He comes from love, and he is teaching me to love. Love it. Love it. Gracie and I went for such a long skate today. She she is becoming a triathlete. I maybe it's cuz the weather is cooler that she can just go forever, but I live near a college and I it's all about finding smooth concrete cuz when I'm skating with her and we're on uh and she has the skates and I'm running. <laughs> When we're, we're skating, um, smooth concrete is just like heaven. And I finally started skating her through this college that's near me. And I imagine because a lot of college kids will feed the squirrels, it is like a squirrel zoo over there. So <laughs> it can be a little hairy sometimes. But my point of all of this is I love that time with her. Sometimes we'll go out and we'll skate for like, 40 minutes and it's a chance to get out in the sun and I talk to her almost the whole time as if she's listening and has any idea what I'm saying but I don't know it's just really there's something so pure about it and I love it anyway I hope you got something out of today's episode and if you're out there and you're struggling just never forget that you are not alone and there is help it just sometimes is taking that first scary step and asking for help. But before we know it, we're feeling better. We're seeing more clearly. we got a support group of people around us, and we've built a new family, and we can trust again, and life feels worth living. And that's pretty cool. So you're not alone, and thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully everybody I know weird is fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.